0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, we're replaying an episode from our Coronavirus Crisis Update series from the Take as Directed podcast. My co-host Steve Morrison and I interviewed David Sanger of the New York Times about the Times reporting into the White House missteps in controlling the pandemic. David Sanger is a national security correspondent for the New York Times and one of the newspaper's senior writers. He's also the author of The Perfect Weapon, one of the best books you will ever read about cybersecurity. Now, my colleagues want me to say a lot of great things about my good friend David Sanger, like he teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, like he as a member of a Pulitzer Prize-winning team, like he was the White House correspondent for the New York Times and all that stuff. But I'll just say he's really a great guy and we're happy to have him here to talk about this unbelievable story that David reported out with Maggie Haberman, Michael Shear, and Eric Lipton of the New York Times. David, why don't you tell us what your reporting says?
1: Well, thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you and great to be with Steve. We went about this attempting to update a fairly big reconstruction that we did in April of this year that was set out to ask the question, how did we get into the coronavirus issue to begin with? How did the president respond in the opening months? And that covered the period from January through basically the end of March, when you'll recall that the president was denying that there was an issue, was saying things like, we're going to go from 15 cases to zero, that we have this completely under control, there's nothing to worry about, to the panic discovery that they had nothing under control, that it was beginning to take off, and so forth. And basically, that was a story of a president who had stuck his head in the sand to try to ignore the evidence that was out there, certainly wasn't planning for the worst case scenario because he believed that any kind of shutdown of the country would result in an economic disaster that would hurt him in the re-election campaign. But by the time April, May, and June came along, it was a different situation. Coronavirus was ravaging New York. It had hit California. People were hearing sirens every night. We had first hundreds and then thousands of deaths. And The big question, having done a shutdown, was how are they then going to get the economy restarted again? And the period we wanted to cover was that period of time, particularly in April, the critical weeks in April, when a set of decisions were made that led to what we're seeing now, which is a resurgence of the virus elsewhere in the country, not in New York, that basically is now twice as worse as it was in the worst days of March. And the answer to that was that the president moved from about Easter weekend through to the second or third week in April to saying, this is the biggest presidential decision I will ever have to make, when to reopen the economy. You probably remember him saying that, to a week later not making any decision and saying, this is up to the governors. We've given them all that they need. Here are some guidelines for reopening phase one, phase two, phase three. you know you had to have two weeks of declining infections or two weeks of declining deaths and so forth and immediately the President began to undercut the guidelines that his own White House had turned out because having turned them out, he was quickly discovering that no state could meet them, and therefore it was getting in the way of reopening and this is when he was arguing that the states need to be liberated from their democratic governors and so forth. And this set the stage, as it turned out, for what we've seen today. And so we went back and began to look at the projections that Dr. Debbie Burks, Dr. Fauci, others were looking at. The debate, the surprising split. And how to interpret those between Fauci and Burks. Uh, Dr. Burks, of course, was one of Dr. Fauci's mentees, so it was an interesting split. The pressures on Dr. Burks to give the White House what they wanted. Uh, we discovered a set of meetings that were taking place at 8 a.m. most mornings in the office of Mark Meadows, newly arrived as the White House Chief of Staff, where the real decisions were being made while the Coronavirus Task Force was being phased out just in time for the resurgence of coronavirus. And so what we discovered was a whole new set of errors that they made in phase two that were different and original from the errors they made in phase one.
0: I want to bring in my colleague
2: and dear friend, Steve Morrison. Thank you. And thank you, David, for joining us. This decision structure that you talk about Which has Mark Meadows, Jared Kushner, Grogan, and Short, and Deborah Burks as the person representing public health and science. These were folks who brought an enormous amount of skepticism of the whole public health approach. They were openly dismissive and suspicious of Tony Fauci. And they made this big decision to transfer power to the states from the federal government without any systematic analysis or planning. They pushed for what you termed in the article, state authority handoff. Was this just the only answer they could come up with on how to reopen? Was this why they would take such a dangerous step?
1: What's interesting is to this day, they defend this approach and their answer to that is every state was different. Montana had barely any cases at the time while New York was on fire. So their answer is not entirely unreasonable. What works in Manhattan may not necessarily work in Montana. They were aware of the possibility of a second phase, although they thought that it would come in the fall, and it may yet. They believed in the backs of their minds that the summer and the heat of the summer would eliminate a lot of the disease. That happened in 1918, But in 1918, we didn't have a world of air conditioning, where people were largely inside and air systems were recirculating, though there are many other possible explanations for what we've seen this summer. There's a moment in the top of the story where Meadows is quoted as saying to people, only in Washington, DC would they think they have the answer for all of these different states.
2: Right
1: on the one hand, you could say this is good Republican orthodoxy, right, that you return the power of the states and go do it. On the other hand, in recent weeks, what have we seen? The president of the United States, frustrated by the fact that a number of states are not reopening schools or planning to reopen schools, threatening to withhold federal funds from any state that is not opening the schools and getting the students there. And so one of the questions we asked was, okay, if you ideologically believe that you just need a different answer in each state, then why would you possibly invoke the threat of federal action against any state that doesn't do what the federal government wants it to do here?
0: You know, I was really struck by that too, David. And later in the article, you report out that Governor Gavin Newsom of California was required if he wanted aid from the federal government to call and personally thank President Trump for it. So that doesn't factor in quite well with Republican orthodoxy either.
1: You know, one of the interviews I did in the course of this, somebody said to me, David, you spent your life covering North Korea. This is somebody I knew pretty well. He said, You know how in North Korea, every once in a while, you see Kim Jong-un or his father or grandfather show up, and they talk about how this project was at the direction of the great leader or the deal reader? Yeah. Well, that's kind of what the ventilator and PPE thing turned into, which was you were supposed to call the president and ask for, as a favor, (laughs) the delivery of these goods. And then the president would go out and say, You know, I had a very nice conversation with the governor of California or whoever it was that day, and he was very nice to me, and I sent him, you know, 200 ventilators. And we saw that happen when the president was still showing up at the Coronavirus Task Force briefings.
2: David, in reading your piece, one thing that struck me was just how much this group, when they met and made these decisions how much they were basically rejecting the fundamentals that had come out of the task force. In other words, the notion that there were going to be guidelines for when you would reopen, those were kind of thrown out. The idea that you had to invest in test, contact trace, quarantine, isolation, the fact that you had to think about the risk of regression, the risk of reversal because of the nature of these outbreaks. All that fundamental thinking that came out of the kind of public health discourse, they seem to just reject it outright with the notion that we're just going to move ahead and everything's going to be okay.
1: You know, Steve, I guess I would phrase it slightly differently after the reporting that we did. It wasn't that they rejected it as much as they cherry-picked the evidence. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a little bit of covering how the Bush administration came to the conclusion that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. They picked those charts and evidentiary bits that they liked, and they rejected the alternative scenarios.
0: Yeah, that's right. You said in, in the Meadows meetings that several of the participants in the Meadows meetings, quote unquote, came to believe that you know, this was overblown or that was overblown. Is that what you're talking about here? Let me give you a more specific example. Dr. Burks is a big believer in models.
1: Right. She had two models in particular she believed in. One was that we would follow as a nation the pattern of Italy, where there was a very steep upgrade in, you know, run up in the cases. And then after Really good discipline nationwide, a very steep decline. In fact, that's what happened in New York, right? We had a big run up, we had a little bit longer uh, hanging on, and then a very sharp decline. And New York today looks pretty good compared to many other parts of the country, certainly good compared to Texas or Florida or LA. So I think there was an over reliance on the Italian model. And in part, that's because. Italy imposed discipline across the country, and the U.S. never really got to that. And so we never pushed our cases down low enough to keep the resurgence tamped down. The second model she was a big fan of was the University of Washington series that we've all relied on, which were constantly updated.
0: This is the Chris Murray model.
1: Right. And these all showed projections going out. And if you looked at the April 1st and then the April 15th projections, and you looked out ahead to like today, you would see that they would show almost no infection rates. And obviously we know that unfortunately the world has moved in a very different, or the country has moved in a very different direction. Then if you read into the Chris Murray models, you say, so what were the assumptions in those models? And the main assumption on April 1st and April 15th was that reopening did not happen until around June 1st. And in fact, by the time they announced on April 16 those phased reopening standards, some states were already reopening and many more did immediately. They did not wait for those standards to apply. They didn't allow those number of weeks to go by, and they certainly didn't wait until June 1st. So the result was that that group looked at this set of models, and I don't think they spent a lot of time saying, "Okay, are we following the assumptions on which this model is based? Now, in most other administrations I have covered, and Andrew will be the first to tell you I've covered every presidency back to TAF, <laughs> people would say, okay, we've got you know three possibilities of how this is going to go. Let's plan for the worst case scenario and pray for the best, right? Instead, they planned for the best.
2: Right. Which is somewhat surprising when you think that You know, Deborah Burks has built her career around HIV AIDS, which is, you know, where you have no vaccine, you have no cure, and you always have a constant threat of regression, and you have to worry about behavior of people, and you have to worry about having systems in place to test and continually regulate and and monitor what's going on. And here we were allowing the reopening to happen in a very premature and sloppy way with no systems in place.
0: Well, and knowing what she knows that a lot of science indicates that COVID may be endemic the way AIDS is. So what was missing here? If you listen to Dr. Fauci's
1: public statements, every time he was asked about this, he would say, I believe we can get to reopening if the country just hangs on and does what they're supposed to do for the amount of time stipulated in those phased reopening guidelines. I think if it had been up to him, those guidelines would have been a little stricter, but he was willing to live with it if people were actually going to go do it. Now, Dr. Birx would periodically talk about the phased reopening guidelines, but she did not reliably say if everybody follows the president's reopening guidelines. For a while, the vice president, Mike Pence, did say that. He would say, I've just got to ask the country to follow the president's own guidelines. He would always put it in the terms of the president so that he showed that he was being loyal, but discussing those. In fact, what we learned was the president wasn't especially interested in the president's own guidelines. The president was interested in getting the country going again. So he didn't say to every governor who called him in the evenings, Hey, you guys can reopen as long as you meet the guidelines. He just said, great, go for it.
2: No, it comes across very loud and clear that he was articulating, I think we use the term nonsense around testing. He was refusing on the masks. He was disregarding the value of these of these guidelines and putting intense pressures on states to reopen. I mean, he was doing the exact opposite. He was saying, what's the problem here? I'm not holding you to account on any of these things. You don't have to have the systems in place. So you've got many of these states reopening while their their caseload is in the ascent, right? While the case count is rising.
1: That's right. And remarkably, Steve, we're seeing this play out again in the debate over schools. Yeah. So as we speak, it's July twenty. A month from now, a lot of schools will be reopening or their normal term would come. And by six weeks from now, all kids would be back in school. And we're not even getting to the university issue here. You would think the president might be saying, here are the standards for reopening. But instead, what they did was they came down like a ton of bricks on the CDC for what their school reopening standards were. And you think they might be saying, here's what we're going to do to offer help to each school so that they can safely reopen. Instead, he has said, if you don't reopen, you will lose your federal funds. I don't think he can actually do that. But it's an interesting mentality. He is once again not saying, of course, we want the schools open, because if you don't open the schools, parents can't get back to work, right? Mm. So there's a good argument here to be made for doing that, but you want to reopen them safely. And what you'd like to be hearing from the White House right now is, here's what the best medical advice we have is about how to reopen safely. And here's what the federal government's going to do to help you meet those standards. If we have to put plastic walls between kids, here's money for plastic walls between kids. If we have to help you phase it in so that you don't have as many kids in the school at any given time, here's what we're going to go do. If, we need, if you need advice on whether uh, you, know, you can't play football because kids are crashing into each other, but you might be able to do rowing teams or something that's outside where, where there's a distance between kids, you know, that's what you'd want to hear. And, and maybe I'm missing it, Steve, but I'm not hearing that.
2: Yeah.
0: David, what role has Deborah Burks and others played in helping Donald Trump get to these decisions? Well, as you
1: say, she's highly experienced. She has huge experience in the AIDS case. She's the only one of the public health professionals who's got an office right inside the White House. So she's there all the time.
0: And that was surprising to me when I read that in your piece. Right. That she had a West Wing office. She's got
1: a West Wing office because she is the director of the Coronavirus Task Force. Now, you'll remember we reported back in May that the White House was going to phase out the Coronavirus Task Force. Right. Right just in time for coronavirus to have this huge resurgence. But what I found notable was that the president decided, after he read that story in the New York Times, I don't think he had been consulted on the phasing out. The president decided, no, we're going to stick with the coronavirus task force. We're going to keep it around because it's so popular. He didn't say because it was so effective. He didn't say because they're giving me such stellar advice that I want to follow but because it's popular. And I found that very telling because he believed that their briefings, I think accurately, were being well-received around the country as evidence that someone operating from inside the White House had a handle on all of this. And the briefings only stopped when the president realized that in hijacking them and talking for two hours, he was digging himself even a deeper hole.
0: And now he says he's going to restart them. He's going to restart them. So,
1: you know, it'll be interesting to see whether he decides to show more discipline this time, show up, say they're doing a great job, we're delighted to be here, and let me turn this all over to the professionals who will tell you what we're going to do as a federal government.
0: That doesn't sound like something he would do.
1: Or whether he's going to treat them as campaign events and, you know, make suggestions like using UV inside the body, which... When they decide to experiment on, Andrew, I've already volunteered you as one of the
0: first to go For the disinfectants
2: and the UV, yeah.
0: Well, thanks, because it's not hot enough outside. I need more internal heat. Yeah. Right. Okay.
2: Got it. David, the April report that you did as a group sort of marked the first round, right? And the first round didn't end on a very positive note. This July 18th article is really kind of marks the round two. In which the White House is very slow to acknowledge that it's failing, and the virus is resurging and getting way out in front. So today we have a third of the country in an uncontrolled outbreak, forty states in the ascent. So now we've landed in a workplace that's, I think you use the phrase doubly worse than where we were in the worst point in round one. So now we're poised to go into round three. Some folks like John Barry or others are saying, We may get a third shot at getting this right, but the stakes and the proportions of this are getting bigger and bigger and making it that much more difficult. And that if we bail in round three, there's not going to be much more to talk about. What do you think about that proposition?
1: You know, I don't have medical training. I'm here as a policy and national security reporter and former White House reporter. So I'm learning this along the way uh, from Mm -hmm. people who know. More about it than I do, but it strikes me that that's right. You might end up because this has been such a horrific experience this summer, with people concluding that they have to go reimpose some controls, mm-hmm. have masks, and so forth. And we might be able to tamp that out so that you don't have a high level of infection cruising around before the fall comes. I merely compare this to other parts of the world. you know, South Korea has got, what, population of 70 million people, roughly, so a uh, quarter of our size. But I think they've had maybe under 300 deaths, if I'm right. Mm-hmm. Singapore, another crowded place, seemed to get it right. Hong Kong was doing well, has now had a bit of a resurgence. And I noticed, and you saw it in the Chris Wallace interview uh, with the president over the weekend, the president really bristles at the thought that America isn't number one here. And they had this prolonged argument about whether or not we've got the seventh worst ratio here. And we do. I mean, the numbers are the numbers. And uh, we have done extremely poorly as a country. Now, you might argue that that's to be expected in a federal system where every state can go sort of set some of their own rules. But, you know, the president said early on in this that he wanted to be a wartime president. You know, he he viewed this as the invisible enemy. And, you know, I don't recall in World War II, uh, we should ask Andrew because he's old enough to remember that. Um, <laughs> oh, man. I don't remember in World War II that they said to California, okay, here's some ammunition. Here are a couple of ships. Good luck against those Japanese. And then said to New York, here's some ammo. Here's some ships. You go after the Germans.
0: And by the way, don't call me. I'll be on the golf course.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. The president at the beginning of this was talking like a full federal response. He said, only the president has the power to go do this. And then he flipped around on that.
0: Yeah, that's the other thing we wanted to ask about. So your reporting shows that midway through this, or I guess sort of early on, they changed strategies. It was, we're going to flip this to the states. We've done all we can do, and we're going to put this to the states. What was the thinking behind that? Well,
1: the two best arguments you could make for that are not every solution fits every state. I don't think they imagined that it was going to rip through the South the way it has. In fact, quite the opposite since the temperatures there are higher. And the other argument that they would make in that regard is that people have a lot better chance enforcing this at the local level. The more cynical way to look at this, Andrew, is that if you've handed it off to the states and it doesn't work you can then blame the governors or the mayors, which is exactly what the president's been doing. And he's going to say, I gave them everything they need. They just didn't use it right.
2: Which is the argument they're using now in the debate in the supplemental in the Congress over the request for additional funding for testing and for other things.
0: Is he right about that, though? Well,
1: he would be right about it if he hadn't undercut it by saying, liberate the states, let them reopen. If, you don't, open the the, yeah. if you don't open the schools, I'm going to cut your federal funding. Not if you don't open the schools following this set of guidelines. And if they had turned out a rigorous, well-understood set of federal guidelines that didn't contradict each other, and then stuck to that message and named and shamed any state that opened up early without following the guidelines, then I think they would have a reasonable case to say, we implemented this at the state level, but we gave them the best medical advice we could give them. Now, the people who were inside the White House made the case to us, look, the Tony Fauci's of the world, wonderful as they may be, are focused merely on optimizing for stopping coronavirus. But if people are out of work and you have 20% unemployment or whatever the number is, you're going to have health effects. People are going to lose their health insurance and not get other care. They're going to have a series of other big issues that will hit them. Suicides will go up. So coronavirus is not the only health-related factor you have to consider here. And that's a reasonable argument if the president had articulated that argument. He didn't.
2: Do you think that when they chose to basically throw everything overboard for the sake of reopening the economy, you think they were hearing that message from the business sector that it was time to push ahead and on such an expedited basis? Because in retrospect, it was a very hazardous, high-risk decision that they took. And so where did they get the confidence that they weren't going to create a train wreck, which is what they have
1: created? It's a great question, Steve. There's a group of economists who will say to you, the best thing you do for the economy is kill the virus. Yes. Because if you haven't really killed the virus, the virus is going to come back and kill the economy. The alternative argument is power through it, get the economy going, and rev it up. And I think in May and June, they thought they were winning. Mm -hmm. You know, New York was on the downhill slide. They had not seen big outcrops, other cases. They began to pick up on a phrase that Dr. Burks used, which is put out the embers mm-hmm, elsewhere, because mm-hmm. embers suggest that you're just getting rid of the remnants of your cooking fire. And as Chris Wallace pointed out to the president, turned out there were whole states where you didn't have embers. You had a roaring forest fire.
2: Or as Helen Branswell termed it last week, a raging fire. Uh, Dumpster fire.
1: Yeah.
0: David, you and your colleagues conclude that these decisions are among the most historic catastrophes that any White House has ever been involved with. Why did you write that?
1: Well, think about classically big decisions presidents have had to go make: dropping the atomic bomb and for Truman. Okay atomic bomb, a highly controversial decision. We're going to hit the 75th anniversary of it in just two weeks. End of the war, but set us up for decades of nuclear confrontation. Kennedy's decision on the Bay of Pigs, historic blunder, but limited in numbers, right? Johnson on dragging the war out in Vietnam. Big decision. We lost more than 500,000 Americans. I'd say you'd might put that in the list. The decision to go to war in Iraq on the assumption that you could control the outcome, nowhere near the number of American deaths that we've seen out of coronavirus, but a historically big decision. But in terms of sheer numbers of lives lost and the potential that we might have gotten this right, and the absence of intellectual curiosity to go figure out what assumptions you were building into it, I think this ranks right up there.
2: David, is there any hope that the White House can correct its course, do you think?
1: This is not a White House that is great at admitting error. I was once with President Trump when he was still a candidate, and in the middle of an interview, some aide came to him with some small issue in which she said, "Uh, we need to apologize for this. And he looked at her and he said, we never apologize. His insistence is we got this right and we're doing it better. We're the envy of the world. I would argue that that's not the case. But it is possible, I imagine, that the individual states have now gotten enough good advice, that we've learned enough about this, that they may be able to hold it together until a vaccine and therapeutics or multiple vaccines and therapeutics take over. We're already seeing people being treated better in hospitals than they were at the beginning, because we're learning a lot about this disease and we have a lot to learn still. But if we do come out of this in one piece, if we do get it together here, I think it's going to be because of the collective view of the American people and a lot of governors and others, rather than central direction from the president.
2: The governors continue to band together. They continue to steer the course if given enough leeway to do that and enough resources.
1: Some of them, uh, the governor of Georgia is suing the, problem, yeah. the mayor of Atlanta mm. for trying to impose mask rules herself in Atlanta. Right. That's pretty astounding.
2: Yep. Now we have Kemp, we have DeSantis, we've got Abbott struggling.
1: And those are in three of the hardest hit states.
0: Well, David, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate your insight and look forward to more reporting and insight from you and your colleagues. Well, thanks. It's
1: really my colleagues who deserve the great credit here. Noah Wayland, who had just started in on the health beat, replacing the great Robert Pear, just mm-hmm. as it happened. Maggie Haberman and Mike Shear, who do phenomenal work covering the White House. Eric Lipton, who uh, has gone state by state with. Freedom Information requests from which we've learned a huge amount. So uh, it's, it's quite a team.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more.